0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's com slash four keys and download your free copy. It's
1: so interesting because I was not raised to think like an owner and I'm not, I'm not, you know, dissing on my parents, they're amazing, but we, you would own, you'd have a 401k or something. Uh, but there was none of the ownership thing. And, and, and I didn't really think about that until I didn't have ownership because I always had carry and things like that. So that's great, whatever. But what I realized, of course, when I was sort of freelancing is the minute you are on a treadmill, right? And so I, that I realized I really needed to have that. And I think so many people miss the boat on that. And what's so interesting though, is I, I was recently in, uh, in, in Kenya you <laughs> and i was talking to uh there was a guy who was driving me around nairobi and we were talking about this and in kenyan culture it is very common for family groups to get together pool their money and buy things that are productive assets like real estate or to start a shop and they totally get this they because you, it's a society where the the workforce is less stable there's a lot of working in the gray economy and people can't really count on social security and so i thought it was really provocative that you have a society very different than ours how the world, but people have figured out exactly that point, that if they are going to create stability uh, for themselves over the long run in income, they need to own something.
3: like me,
1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com
0: slash people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips.
2: Patrick, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually came across um, your work in your book by way of uh, your publicist at Penguin Portfolio, who happens to also be my publisher as well. And uh, I got a chance to, you know, dig through your book. And I loved it because it suddenly made something that seems really inaccessible to everybody much more accessible, which we will get to get into in a lot of detail. But before we get there, I want to start by asking what did your parents do for a living? And how did that impact the choices that you've made with your life and your career? So I'm from
1: a small town in Maine, about 20,000 people, and my dad worked on nuclear submarines. He was a government employee. My mom worked for a local manufacturing company doing sales. My family, were french Canadian, so my grandparents, none of them made it past eighth grade. My dad graduated high school. My mom graduated. Um, she got an associate's degree at night, uh, which was a ton of work I have a lot of respect for. But because of that, I think my parents there was no sort of entrepreneurial sort of uh, discussion happening at our dinner table and they were very much uh, focused on stability and and I was always sort of brought up that I would work in a large company and that's exactly what I did I was very ambitious I wanted to do well and so I ended up doing wall street and things like that but I always worked at companies with hundreds of thousands of employees um up until up until I didn't I guess
2: mm mm-hmm. Yeah. What would you say to parents listening um, right now based on sort of where you see the workforce headed uh, in kind of your own experience with this and especially having not been raised by entrepreneurial parents, but then becoming an entrepreneur yourself?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, as, I, as I've as i been researching entrepreneurship and learning about it, I always – you hear this question, you know, are entrepreneurs born or are they made? And then you see these stats around the fact that you, supposedly if you have a parent who's an entrepreneur, you're three times more likely to be an entrepreneur yourself. So there are all these kind of – factors out there that are built into the system, uh, that if you're thinking about how you want your kids to to build their careers, are there things you should be doing now? If you look out there at the workforce, when I was coming out of college, I came out of college in 1998, I went to Georgetown, you either became a consultant or a banker. That's what you did, <laughs> right? Do you remember?
2: Yeah, well, and, I graduated and, around <laughs> the same time, so
1: I totally remember. Right, and then, and then everybody ran over to the tech bubble in 2000 and then they lost their jobs and they went B2B or B2C back to banking, back to consulting. Mm -hmm. Um, and nowadays, obviously, there's been after the financial crisis and all the things that have happened, those options don't offer what they used to. You think about all of these traditional paths that were the go-to paths, the things that that I was taught to believe were the right things to do, like law or medicine or finance. And most people in those fields, if you look at the at sort of polling data, aren't very happy or wouldn't recommend it to other people. And so I think what's happening is we are in part of a, of a of a irreversible trend that is that is due to a couple of factors. One is globalization. One is, um, automation that is changing the way that we work today. And people need to be much more flexible and they need to be willing to live with a lot more volatility. And as a result, they need to have skills that are not sort of, uh, the kinds of things that I was learning as I was a kid. So I think as you're a parent, and thinking about where kids need to do you need to breed flexibility into them but you also need to really instill a sense of taking ownership for what you do and that's so interesting because you think about you know this the, the millennial generation and helicopter parents and all the things that you read about and the challenges that work the workplace is having today as they, as they they bring in younger people into their organizations they don't understand how to manage these people but i'm also concerned that a lot of these younger people because they've had these really hands-on parents aren't equipped to think of independently or do things independently when they face tough times in the workplace, when they face disintermediation, intermediation, when they face the next crisis. So I think that's going to be a real challenge that we're going to have to deal
2: with as a society. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> how do you think about um, education from this perspective? Like, you know, how do you update it, I guess, is really the question so that it is, you know, in line with what <clears throat> the workforce needs, because right now it seems pretty outdated.
1: Absolutely. If you walk into a a classroom today or you walk into an office today, you could be confused for thinking it's the mid-1990s. Not much has changed, right? Perhaps in the classroom and in the, there, in, the, in the office, there's a lot more computers and things like that. But if you think about the way people are learning, it's pretty much the same. What I saw, and, and I had the experience, I went to Harvard Business School, and that was so different from my undergraduate. When I was in business school, everything was based on doing and case studies and collaborative work. And I found that really different and actually kind of uncomfortable in the beginning because I was used to, as an undergraduate, I was a very good student. I would Google, take the, basically the textbook home and memorize it be able to explain it ad nauseum to anybody who wouldn't be caring to listen, and then I'd get a really (laughs) high score on the test, and that made me the best in my class or whatever. That's how I excelled. When I went to business school, I was in this room that was a laboratory of ideas. We would all read a case. and The entire education at HBS is, is based on this case study method where you read a case study and then you discuss it and you have a professor who facilitates insights and discussion and debate within the organization. And I, what I realized was, number one, that had I never worked before, I would have been poorly equipped to actually do that because I was not taught those skills in the Uh, educational system, I I learned them in the workplace, actually dealing with real problems. Second, I saw that people who went straight from undergraduate into the business school environment, uh, we had a couple of classmates who had done that, although very few, really struggled to engage in those discussions. And so then when I took that back into the workplace afterwards, I realized how much more equipped I was to deal with the real kinds of problems you see in life. Because once you've studied six or 700 cases and you've seen how six or 700 different people overcome a challenge... I think it informs you. You see patterns and you, you have a, a, a set of tools and resources you can draw on. So my view would be uh, that there needs to be a stronger integration between the theory and the practice and really actually getting students, no matter what field you're in, to be practical, sort of do a practicum, be out there in the world, practicing what they're doing and seeing how that reacts with the world around them and then learning from their mistakes as they go along.
2: Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting. Um, I was, you know, recently at this, uh, as I was mentioning before we hit record, uh, at this nonprofit, and they brought in somebody from the Center for Brain Health uh, from the University of Texas at Dallas. And she had talked about two kinds of learning. One is what we call rote learning, which is exactly what you're talking about with memorizing and regurgitating. And she said, you know, um, the other is what we call integrated reasoning. And what they have found in a lot of their research around, you know, brain science and making our brain smarter and stretching the brain is that simply reading and consuming Endlessly um, actually doesn't cause your brain to stretch, whereas integrated reasoning, like actual application, kind of the things that you're talking about, actually, you know, literally from a brain science standpoint, actually causes your brain to stretch and um, makes you more creative and more intelligent. That's so
1: interesting. I think back to my high school in Maine. So our high school was a regional high school uh, and we had kids from all these other towns. And we had this vocational center where every year the students would build a house on the the grounds of our school and then they would sell the house. And I really wish I had taken that class because I can tell you something, I never did anything that was remotely practical in that sense. And I think I would have really benefited from that or something, small engine repair, something like that where I had to use a completely different set of skills and actually do something. Mm-hmm. And I think you're seeing more people trying to integrate these two things,
2: but clearly, uh, clearly there's a lot of room to move. So you, you mentioned globalization and automation, and I, I, I want to I dig deeper into both of those for a couple of reasons. One, because um, right now my business partner Brian and I are actually enrolled in uh, Peter Diamandis' uh, Exponential Success course, um, you know, which is all about the exponential technologies and the things that they're teaching at Singularity University. And automation is one of the big ones that they talk about yeah. through AI and all of this. So I'm curious, when you look at something like globalization, you look at something like automation, what are the implications of that um, for the future of work? Um, you know, and what does the future of work look like? Because the other thing I know that you mentioned in the book is the idea of one job no longer being enough. So I, re- I realized are like three questions in one. <laughs>
1: well, I, so I spent a lot of time. Thinking about globalization uh, because my whole career has been really global so my whole career has had me jumping on planes going to places all over the place China Pakistan Turkey Latin America Africa Europe and so I've had an opportunity to see things on the ground and it's really interesting because um, what I learned from that experience was yes countries are very different. And yes, societies are very different. But if you go to a mid-sized manufacturing company in remote, you're sort of northeastern Brazil, and you go to a mid-sized manufacturing company in in Antalya, Turkey, they kind of look the same. And the problems that they face are the same. And the way that you need to overcome those problems is often very similar. And so there's actually a lot of, of, of similarity between different parts of the world. But as you see, and, and as you see in playing out in the political sphere today, globalization has, um, you know, at times it's very popular and other times it's very unpopular, but regardless what you feel about it, it's very difficult to turn back the clock. And that combines with the, automiz- the automation part of the story, which you mentioned, which is this fact that, and, and I, you talk about AI, um, I, I invested in an AI company a couple years ago that is using algorithms to optimize the uh, the the match between a caller to a call center and an agent in a call center. And so what it does is it makes that interaction more efficient for both parties and better for the company. Company who's the customer? That's an AI solution that doesn't cost anybody their jobs. It just makes things better. Mm -hmm. But there are so many other types of AI products that are actually going to put tons of people out of business. And of course, automation itself will do so. So the largest, um, the number one employment role in the united states is is, um is working as at a cash register and ringing people up for sale and as you see new technologies coming and you can see this the amazon store that's been prototyped you don't really need anybody to do that anymore and so all of those people are going to be thrown out into the office i'm sorry into the street and so So there's these, there's this real shifts taking place. What I think people forget about is it's not just about people who work in quote unquote manual labor or people who work in call centers that are affected. If you look at Wall Street, if you look at trading, if you look at major industries like the legal industry, you're either seeing people losing their jobs due to automation or they're, they're losing their jobs due to globalization and the fact that you can put part of that task somewhere where it will be done much less expensively and as efficiently or more efficiently. And so that affects, you know, the quote unquote, White collar workers, and that 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 was really a, a big it sort of realization I had, is that globalization affected me in the sense that the globalization of the capital markets and and the volatility that that resulted from that and all of the other things that happened in 2008 caused my company, which was AIG, uh, to basically go bankrupt. And I had you know I had a a, a lot of sort of belief in AIG. I wasn't super. I wasn't such a big fan of, of AIG sort of as a brand. It wasn't like the sexiest business out there, but it was a company with a trillion dollar balance sheet, with a hundred million dollar, hundred billion dollar market capitalization, and a triple A credit rating. And that company went out of business overnight. And so, for from my perspective, I was one of these people who thought maybe I was invincible and that these factors couldn't affect me. But in fact, I too was was very much affected, and that really caused me to to, to Basically, believe that we all need to recognize that we are. There is no permanence in our jobs, and that even if you do something that you think is sort of uh, going to be around forever, that you, you shouldn't you shouldn't sort of cl- close your eyes to the reality that that there is there is no permanence out there.
2: Yeah, I think it's really interesting, You know, especially AI in particular. Like, I have an uh, AI uh, news alert on my news app on the phone, and the funniest thing I saw so far was Hinge, the dating app, now has a $99 a month AI that takes all of the work out of the situation for you, which means you don't actually have to write messages, you don't have to contact anybody, the AI does the work for you so that you basically get to the, the end goal, which is to actually end up on a date, which I thought was really funny.
1: Wow. I thought, you know, I've heard, I had a friend who wrote an article for Elle magazine where she hired people offshore to do that. Uh So the globalization play got trumped by the AI play in this story, apparently.
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's, I mean, the thing that I think is interesting, you know, and this is, again, you know, some of what we've been talking about with Peter is, is he said, you know, like mankind has basically been given one of the greatest levers ever. This is going to free us up to think and create in ways that we've never been able to before. You know, rather than just seeing our jobs as going away, this is, you know, tremendous amounts of opportunity at a level that we've never had before.
1: Totally. The, the scary part is, though, and I had this dinner conversation uh, conversation at dinner last night, is A, uh, we're getting to a point where the AI will start replacing even the people who are creating the AI, so it'll start building on itself, which is really quite interesting. And second is all of the negative things that it may bring, not just in terms of you know, replacing people's jobs, but there will be negative Technologies created that do bad things, mm-hmm. and we haven't seen where those are going to go yet. So, you what, what it's sort of like you raise a kid and you put them out into the world, and yes, they do some nice things, but sometimes they misbehave. We don't quite know yet where the misbehaving is going to take place.
2: Yeah, well, that, that's you know, really interesting because you know, you've got virtual reality where you could actually have crimes that occur in a virtual world. Um, last night, I was watching a documentary on Netflix where it was a documentary about 3D printing and all the 3D printing companies, and there was some kid in Texas who basically figured out how to 3D print weapons. Using the material in the three D printer, like actual guns.
1: Yeah, (laughs) that that's that. I don't want to watch that
2: documentary. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's a little. You know, some of that stuff is a little scary. It's like you know, like any technology. I think you can uh, misuse. I mean, we've seen that with the internet as well. So I think it's really interesting. But you know, you mentioned AIG. I'm curious, sort of, what the trajectory of your career has been, what the significant inflection points have been, and how that ultimately sort of planted the seed for this idea of the ten percent entrepreneur.
1: Sure. So I came out of high school and I thought I wanted to be, um, I had this very, uh, exotic dream of being a trade negotiator, which is, like sounds so boring. But I loved uh, I loved Latin America. I was really interested in Latin America, and I was really interested in economics. And so I thought maybe I'd go work in the government and maybe try to do something like n- negotiate the next NAFTA or something like that. So I went to Georgetown. I was in the School of Foreign Service. And then I studied my junior year abroad in Argentina, and I was convinced I was going to move to Argentina. I fell in love with Argentina, but I was worried about the volatility, actually. So Argentina, a great country, but their their economy sort of blows up with reasonable uh, sort of sort of sort of, sort of uh, replication. Every five to ten years, everything kind of gets reset. And so I thought, you know, my bias towards stability, I thought, well, that's not a good idea. And so I went to an investment bank that uh, was uh, that was Chase at the time, and I was working in their Latin America group. So I got to do my Latin America stuff, but within a company that had tens of thousands of employees. And I was there for a short amount of time and was super bored and didn't like it. And then my boss said, why don't you, uh, you interview for the venture capital group? And so I thought, well, I don't really know what that is, but I went to meet the people, and they were super smart and interesting. And uh, at the time, uh, we, the, the, my boss, a woman named Susan Siegel, did all of her deals in partnership with Fred Wilson, who now um, is the head of Union Square Ventures, but at that time was working at a place called Flatiron. And so I went over and started working with them, and I got one year out of college, I was working on venture capital deals and starting to go on boards of companies and did all of the early sort of first wave of internet companies in Latin America, one of the companies we invested in actually uh, was called Mercado Libre, and that we invested at in a valuation of less than $10 million. And today it's listed on, uh, I believe it's the NASDAQ, and they have a valuation of about $7 billion. So it was really amazing to be there in the early days, but we were very early to the party. And so in 2000, everything blew up, and it really shook me because I sort of thought I had found this perfect place to be. And they started firing people and I, we, all of our companies were going bankrupt. And so I decided that I needed to find sort of my next step. And then 9-11 happened and I thought, well, I really want to get out of New York. And it Everybody I knew was sort of applying to business school, and I had this like sense of FOMO around business school, so I applied. And I was lucky enough to go to Harvard. And when I got there, I did not know what I wanted to do. I wanted to do something totally different, but I was sort of used to private equity and venture capital, and I thought it was a respectable field and had a lot of upside. So after school, I went uh, back into the field, but. I couldn't find a great firm to work for. I actually worked for a firm that I didn't like right out of school, and I only lasted six months. And I woke up one one day and went to work and took a nap under my desk at 10 a.m., and I realized that I needed to start looking for a new job. And that's when I moved over to AIG and their private equity division, and was working I I knew from day one that it was the right place for me to be because I was investing all over the world. I was traveling back to Latin America and to new places and they gave me a lot of sort of autonomy and I went on boards of companies and things were really going well and I was getting promoted with consistency and I got every year the bonus got bigger and and I was quite happy because I allowed – I was sort of in this position where I had a very dynamic, interesting career where I went to really crazy places and worked with the best people in those countries and would go on a yacht on the Bosphorus uh, to dinner or go to Pakistan and meet with cabinet ministers. And so I just love that excitement and building businesses and finding the best people in those countries to run them. Uh, But the problem was, of course, that while I thought I was very safe with an AIG, AIG was clearly very affected in 2008. And despite the fact that our division had nothing to do with the reasons that AIG failed, we were completely affected, and we were put up for sale, and the the, the, the whole thing sort of just started to go downhill. And so I I got uh, at the time that AIG blew up, it was two thousand eight. Um, a couple weeks later, I woke up in a in a hotel room. I was in a, a business trip. On a board meeting uh, in West Virginia, and I woke up in the middle of the night and I was covered in sweat and my, even like my sheets were damp and my pillow and I got up and looked in the, in the mirror and I was I don't, there was something wrong, and then I had swollen glands the next morning and I got back to new York and the doctor basically said you know i don 't know what 's wrong with you we can 't quite tell, but there 's something wrong and It turned out I had some sort of virus that was very much correlated with all the stress that we were going through with the financial crisis. And for the next six months, I had blurry vision and I couldn't really do much of anything. And I was basically, you know, kind of homebound most of the time. And after that experience, it really affected me. And I came back uh, from the new year, so early 2009, with a decision that I was going to change my life. And I basically, in the next six months to a year, uh, did a bunch of things to try to get things back on track. So I went on this health Real health kick, significant health kick, and lost like 30 pounds and got my health back. I went to India and spent some time there and sort of did, um, you know, a trip that was just meant to sort of get me out of New York and get me out of that negative environment at work. And then I figured out that I was going to quit, and so I decided to quit. And I had all these plans, and I went and made a budget, and I figured out how much I could quit for and, you know, how long I could stay out of the workforce and all these other things. And I went in and I tried to quit. And my boss convinced me to stay for a few more months. And then I went in and quit again. And he convinced me to stay a few more months. And then finally, uh, about, you know, about a year after I originally tried to quit, I finally did quit. But I was able to uh, stay on as a consultant. And so, I sort of transitioned to freelancing actually and I and I spent some time traveling and freelancing and then I started to realize you know I'm doing all this freelancing but unlike my old job where I had an ownership stake in all the things I was investing in and I had you know sort of a, 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 a what's called carried interest or the fact that any of the profits of the investments you make you actually get part of those so you have this upside you're an equity holder right I realized well I'm kind of a freelancer now and I have none of that And I'll never really be able to accumulate real wealth if I continue doing this. And that was where the idea for the 10% Entrepreneur came. I thought to myself, why don't I just start doing things on the side? I had some friends that had been angel investors or had been advisors to companies and invested their time for ownership in companies. And so I just started doing that on the side, outside of all the freelancing. And that was my way way personally to build that long-term portfolio that would grow and that would allow me to build
0: real wealth over the long term.
2: Okay. Wow. So many questions come from that. Um, so, you know, you've got to to sort of have a front row seat to really high-performing and successful people at a very young age. Um, and I think that's not, you know, the norm necessarily. And I'm curious, you know, by being exposed to people like that at such a young age, what it taught you about success, human behavior, and relationships that you've applied to your life going forward?
1: Yes, So one of the things that I learned from the people who I really believed in, uh, people like Susan Siegel, who was my boss, uh, and Fred Wilson, people like that, was they empowered me even when I didn't really know what I was doing. They were always there. They gave me clear instructions, and they were there if I needed help. But they empowered me to actually go out and do things in companies and sit down with management teams from a very tender age of like 23, 24 years old. And I was scared. I remember having a lot of terror, actually, because I I was definitely in above my head. But of course, what you realize as you do this is if you're mildly successful, and if you're able to have some some modicum of success, you quickly learn to have more confidence, and you quickly become more adept. And so that was a big thing for me, because I really lacked for confidence. Again, I come from a small town in Maine. I'd never even met a person who worked on Wall Street, right? So this was like a world that I did not understand. And then I was Build finding my way in it, and I was actually able to sit down with really amazing people, and they treated me with respect, and I helped them however I could. So that was that was number one, and that has really influenced how I manage other people. I am I am really about empowering people. The second thing I noticed that these people did so well, and I think about Fred, who who I would watch him because you know you watch a person like that and you just want to be them, right? Fred Wilson, number one, helps everybody he can. He is a very helpful person. Number two, he knows very well who in his network can be sort of called upon and unleashed to help with specific situations. And so when I saw that, I replicated that. And when I would meet companies, I was always there. I was their advocate to help them with with what they needed. And I would go really out of my way to find the right people in my network who could help those companies. And that really, that's something that I have Really, continue to do, and that's been a big part. It's really a big part of what is it is to be a ten percent entrepreneur. And so, those two healthy habits for me, um, they they really formed the way that I think about how you can be successful in the workplace.
2: You know, the other thing that you brought up was this period of you know waking up, um, you know, with sheets drenched, you know, covered in sweat. I'm curious why you think it so often takes something like that for people to actually make a change in their life. Oof,
1: that is a great question. Yeah, because I, I had, you know, working and traveling around the world, I'd probably put on some weight and I was not as healthy as I could have been. And I was very stressed out. And that moment, it was totally like a, a sw- just flipping a switch for me. And I think for me, um, I think part of it was that I was so busy that I could distract myself With the things that were going well. And so I didn't necessarily need to think about that. And I think the other thing is that we surround ourselves with people who do the same things that we do. So many of my friends were indulging in the same types of things, were distracted by the same types of things. And so it was very easy to feel like, you know, I'm doing just fine. Um, But the minute that you have that experience, you realize, you know, this is, this is a turning point how am i going to react and and my reaction was to to come in pretty strong in terms of trying to fix those problems as best as i could
2: hmm. All right. So, I, you know, I want to spend the rest of our time really talking about this whole idea of the 10% entrepreneur because, you know, I loved it because for the first time I actually saw it from a framework sort of standpoint as opposed to things sort of just falling in your lap. Like you almost systematized how to do this. Um, but I want to make a comment and actually, you know, ask you a bit about the ownership piece. You know, my business partner, Brian, and I, he sent me a text a few weeks ago. He said, listen, he said, for decades, people have spent their lives building other people's wealth. And, uh, Mm. you know, he said that more or less describes the entire workforce, he said, unless you own equity in something, you don't own anything, which, you know, I know you've made a a point about ownership, which I I really, when I heard that, I thought, wow, that is really profound, because that's the that's what that's the way the bulk of the world more or less operates with no ownership in whatever it is that they're working on.
1: Yes, that is so true. Um, It's so interesting, because I was not raised to think like an owner. And I'm not I'm not you know, dissing on my parents. They're amazing. But we, you would own, you'd have a 401k or something. Uh, but there was none of the ownership thing. And, and, and I didn't really think about that until I didn't have ownership because I always had carry and things like that. So that's great, whatever. But what I realized, of course, when I was sort of freelancing is the minute you, are on a treadmill, right? And so I, that I realized I really needed to have that. And I think so many people miss the boat on that. And what's so interesting though, is I, I was recently in, uh, in, in Kenya, And I was talking to, uh, there was a guy who was driving me around Nairobi. And we were talking about this. And in Kenyan culture, it is very common for family groups to get together, pool their money, and buy things that are productive assets like real estate or to start a shop. And they totally get this they because it's a society where the workforce is less stable, there's a lot of working in the gray economy, and people can't really count on social security. And so I thought it was really provocative that you have a society very different than ours, halfway across the world, but people have figured out Exactly that point, that if they are going to create stability uh, for themselves over the long run in income, they need to own something.
2: Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think the, the sort of perception, at least from the outside, uh, you know, when we l- spend our time on, on websites like Medium or, you know, we read, you know, websites like TechCrunch or just articles that come across our radar It's that the idea of ownership is only reserved for sort of, you know, if you're lucky enough to have been, you know, early in a startup and cashed out, you have cash to throw around or you happen to be a venture capitalist and you have cash to throw around that you can invest in and you can get ownership stakes in. But I think what I'd really like to do is kind of look at this entire framework for the 10% entrepreneur and talk about how that leads to ownership. Um, So I know you talked first about the five types of 10% entrepreneurs, and then I know you offered an entire framework, which I realize we could spend the rest of our time talking about this, which is what I want to do. So do you think you could walk us through kind of how this actually applies in our own lives, regardless of where we are career-wise? Absolutely. So
1: the first thing I ever did as a 10% entrepreneur... So I I love the – I appreciate you use the word framework because that's what I wanted it to be because I wanted to create a system that people – almost like a manual that people could apply and feel – uh, that no matter where they they were in their career, this, I didn't write this book for people on wall street. I'm glad if they read it and I hope they enjoy it and use it. But I want this book to be applicable to people in all kinds of different industries, all kinds of different places around the world. That's really the reason I did this. It was really important to me. And so I tried to make it really clear and approachable. And so, uh, but I learned it. I did this sort of by I was in the dark room looking for the light switch and trying different things. And the first thing I ever did uh, was, was become an advisor. So the first type of 10% entrepreneur is what I call an advisor. And an advisor is somebody who invests their time in exchange for ownership in a company. And so what happened with me was I was – trying to figure out what to do It was 2010 by that point. So I had spent two years trying to un- unwind myself and figure out where I was going to go. And a friend of mine who had worked with me in the past had a company he had started and he was based in California and he wanted to have somebody on the East coast to drum up some business meetings. And we were selling, um, we were working with YouTube influencers to sell, uh, basically campaigns on, on YouTube ad campaigns. And so he said, can you get some meetings with companies in different industries? And I had some friends at these places. So I said, sure. And I set up some meetings. In exchange for that, he gave me shares in the company. And he also gave me a commission on anything I generated. And so I thought that was kind of interesting. I liked the fact that I was an owner and the fact that there was a direct relationship between what I was doing and the value of the company. And so over time, as we grew and became more successful, the value of my equity grew. And I never had to invest a dime for that. And when we ended up, basically, the company, we realized it wasn't an amazing company. It was never going to go crazy in scale and be a massive business. And so we decided to basically wind it down. I sold my shares back to him. He paid me some money for them. And I walked away. You know, maybe I didn't make millions of dollars, but I walked away having made a little money. But I also had tried something totally new, which was selling. I'd never sold a thing in my life. And I learned something new about that. And I, I learned I was actually pretty good at it. And I also learned that there was some real value to just being part of something and 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 sort of being an owner of something, and so that that was my first experience as this advisor experience. And then later on, my friend Marcelo, the same guy, started this company called Ipsy, which has gone on to be a very successful company um, that is in the cosmetic space. And he called me this time and said, "Would you be willing to invest as an angel investor?" And an angel investor invests capital in exchange for money. So, like you were talking about, you, know, so you hear about this sometimes. Like Ashton Kutcher does this, mm-hmm. and so I would have never done that before. Even if I have, you know, I had the capital, but I was just afraid. I thought to myself, you know, my money, well, when I, you know, it's just, when am I going to see this money again? But because I had worked with him and I had some little experience in the industry and I knew more about it. I said, sure, and I invested very early on, and the company's gone on to raise over $100 million, and so it's been very successful. But that was was sort of not the first thing I did. I really started out as the advisor because that, to me, seemed like much lower risk. The other three types of 10% entrepreneurs are what I call the founder, the aficionado, and the 110% entrepreneur. So the founder is somebody who starts a company and runs it while working full-time. And often they will do that to try out a business idea and make sure that it works before maybe going and running it full-time. And that may take years, by the way. So I have a a friend who took her five years to go from working full-time to maybe, you know, she's now gone on and she's running that business full-time. And it could be that it's six months, but it's a way for you to try something on the side and make sure it works before you just jump in. The aficionado is somebody who is a 10% entrepreneur, but they, they they use that engagement with entrepreneurship to explore a passion. So, for example, I invested in a play in, in London. The Last King of Scotland is going to come out um, early uh, next year, and that is a, a play that I really love. I love the book and I was able to get involved, and I used my finance skills. So it wasn't that I just put money without thinking about it, but I really did that in order to get into this world, this like this showbiz world that I always thought was interesting. And as a result, I got to meet the guy who wrote the book, and I and I had these kind of cool experiences. And finally, there's the 110% entrepreneur. And that is somebody who is already an entrepreneur, and they realize that they've really put one big bet into this high-risk thing, which is entrepreneurship. And so they use 10% entrepreneurship to diversify themselves into other experiences you know becoming an advisor an investor and basically getting a bunch of other ownership stakes so that they don't have all their eggs in one basket with their startup
2: Mm -hmm. all right so let's walk through, so let's say you're taking somebody like me, for example, because I knew this was one of the questions I was going to ask you, regardless of whether we did it on air or not. So let's say that yeah. I wanted to take, you know, what I've built, like the platform that I have at my disposal, you know, with unmistakable creative, having been an author, and and doing all these things, let's say that I wanted to, um, <clears throat> you know, kind of leverage the assets that I have to basically be a value and get an ownership stake in something. Yeah. Um, can you walk me through how, you know, we might do something like that? Yes, absolutely.
1: So, what I would do with you, by the way, I actually I love finding people that are ten percent. So that's like my that's like my unpaid side job. So, <laughs> um, and, and and I've and I've been able to do it with all kinds of different people. So you're an easy one because you you know you're you're you have all this great stuff out there that's, that that uh, that people can read about and and, you're, and they know who you are. But I would sit back and and the first thing we would do with you is figure out well. What are your resources? So, what what are you comfortable investing, and what do you want to invest? Is it your time, and if so, how much time can you actually allocate? Is it capital, and if so, how much capital can you allocate? And then the third thing is, what is your your what do you want to really kind of be known for? What are the things that you want to sort of have people say, you know, we want Sreeni involved because he does these things. So, for example, with you, say you said to me, well, Patrick, listen. You know, I don't really want to invest capital right now. Maybe later, but you know, it's not something I want to do today. But I do want to invest time. But I'm pretty busy. I can probably, you know, I, I'm I'm like an international best-selling author with a thriving speaking career and a podcast. Like, so I don't have too much time. But I can probably give you three to four hours a month. Then that's something to start with. And so what I'd sit back then and say, okay, well, let's look at what you're good at. Well, you have all of this. Thought leadership, and, and I, I don't know if you like that word, but let's just use it <laughs> right, here. Okay. I, it's a, it's that's a loaded gun right yeah, there. Yeah, so. I hear you. But, but um, you have you have knowledge, and you have um, you have a, you have a, a brand, and you have a network around certain things, and so therefore. I would think about what are some areas and startups that are people building companies. It could be companies in the education space, for example. It could be really interesting. It could be companies um, in the conferencing space. It could be companies in the literature or the um, content space. And then think about the, the best thing that you could do with that amount of time is become an advisor. That's the kind of thing where you will basically be, go to the company. The company will go to you. You'll meet these founders, and you're going you're to go out there and network can talk about that more in a bit. But you're going to find a company that says, you know, we're willing to – we want to have a deal with you where you give us you know, an hour a month or so or maybe two hours or something like that. And you give us advice and you give us connections and you help us think through things and you you are part of our – You we can't afford to hire you because you're expensive and you don't have time for us anyway. But we're going to bring you on in a limited capacity and we're going to give you st- – shares in our company. And this is something that is very standard these days. And so that, that exists in the world of, of Silicon Valley and startups and all that. It may be, by the way, like say you were, a, um, you were a graphic designer. You could do the same thing with a small business in your community. You need to figure out how you structure that. But there's all these different ways uh, to engage with companies with a limited amount of time if you think about what you can offer to them and how that's valuable to them.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about the networking piece, like how would I go out and find that opportunity in particular?
1: Yes. So, this is my number one question and and that 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 the answer to that is I probably should have, you know, written three more chapters about it in the book. <laughs> That's yeah. because it's always a question, but but um w- w- there's a couple of things you can do. So, there's a couple of things you've already done really well. One is you have a very clear profile. Like I, I can read about you very easily online, and, and I know who you are. And so you have built up a brand. And so your brand is is a big brand, right? But even somebody who doesn't do any of these things can start building a brand. And I, I encourage people to consider maybe having a website that has a little bit about them, or maybe putting a LinkedIn or something like that, and then thinking about what they want to put out to the world because the minute you talk to somebody they google you and basically that's going to be their first impression of you once you've done those thought through those kinds of things and then what you really need to do is come up with kind of what you want to do in your pitch and the way that i encourage people to do that is to actually write a very long bio of themselves and figure out the things that really stick out and and kind of cross-reference those are the things they want to do and there's a whole process to do this of course but then distill that down into a very basic pitch you know I'm Srini. I'm uh, you know an expert in in content creation and building communities and telling stories, and I have a, a broad network of people in those in those spaces. And I'm looking to advise companies that can value that skill set, and then go to the places where those entrepreneurs are. And so that's the third part. It's very hard to sit at home. Um, you can do. You can definitely use online tools like LinkedIn. But the best way to do this is to go out into the world and talk to people. And so, for example, what I did and what I do today and what drives a lot of the things that I see is that I go to where the entrepreneurs are. I go to meetups or I go to um, uh, tech accelerators and offered to be me a mentor, or I talk to students, students are great because they're always working on new ideas, and I just tell everybody that I talk to what I'm up to and what I'm looking for. And what I also do is, I when I started doing this, I made a list of the 10 people I thought could be most helpful to me, and I went and talked to them. And those people kept me in mind and actually sent me a couple of my early ideas. And so those kinds of things, it's a bunch of, you know, it's like anything else, it's almost like dating, right? You gotta go out there, you gotta be, be out there, put yourself out there, Maybe you're going to kiss a couple frogs to start out with, but you'll eventually find
2: hopefully somebody who, you know, you, you, get along with. Uh-huh. Wow. Um, the, I, I, love this. You know, I think that the thing that I, like I said, I liked most and what I really appreciated so much was that this took the idea of, you know, ownership and, and all these things and made them accessible to everybody as opposed to, you know, accessible to the elite few who, you know, seem to be qualified or have deep enough pockets to be able to do this.
1: Yes, that I'm glad you 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 noticed that because one thing that really again I mean, I've said before, but I am from this small town of Maine where I didn't know people that did these things, and so when I what I didn't want to happen as I thought about this is like this is not just for entitled people, and and there's nothing wrong if you're if you come for money and you do this too, like uh, you know all, more power to you. We want you part of this movement, but what i what it really kind of irritates me a bit is when people say and it happens to me all the time there's always that person who says well if you're doing it part time it's not legit and it's this is not you know not the right way to go and and you you can't do it that way and what i say to people is you know first of all this isn't like some club with a velvet rope around it like however you want to get into the club like you get in you hustle right the second way is if you have this all or nothing mentality it shuts the door to so many smart talented people who might have to take intermediate steps it might never go full-time, but it doesn't mean that they can't be part of this and that they don't deserve to be, or they can't be winners in this. And so I wanted this book when people read it, I didn't care where they would be in the world or what they did or what their socioeconomic strata would be. I wanted them to see a glimmer of hope, an on-ramp that they could take to become an entrepreneur,
2: either 10% or maybe someday 110%. So I have a couple of final questions. Um, one is, um, is there a book or any books in particular that have had a profound impact on your life that you would recommend to our audience? Uh, well, in terms of,
1: I'll do a business book first, but then I'll do more of a, you know, something a little more thoughtful. Okay. Um, I loved The Lean Startup. I think that book really informs a lot of the thinking that's in my book, actually, in terms of just this idea that it doesn't need to be, you don't need to invest millions of dollars to make something work. I think that's a really important message for people. Um, and then in terms of a personal book, I just, I think the book that I reread the most, uh, is, um, to kill a mockingbird. I just think that there's so much in that book about how to treat other people that if you, if you, if you read it every couple of years, it makes you a better person. Hmm. All
2: right. So one final question for you, which is how we finish all our interviews at the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I knew you were going to ask me this and it's still hard.
1: (laughs) Um, (laughs) I think it's, um, the confidence to go your own way and the humility to realize when you're wrong and you are going the wrong way and you need to change pace.
2: Well, this has been just absolutely fantastic. Um, you've packed it with so much insight. So where can people learn more about you, um, your work and the book? So you can find me uh, at my website
1: patrickmcginnis.com, and there you can you can download a free chapter of the book, and there's a bunch of blog posts. For example, I give sample advisor contracts and some terms that you real practical stuff, and that has links to all of my um, social as well. So you know the, all of the good stuff on Facebook and and on Twitter and places like that. So I, I, I'd love to, to hear from you and, and uh,
2: hear your questions and ideas. Awesome! And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that.
5: Next time on the unmistakable creative in two thousand and six, kind of in the the height of all of this, I got sick. I uh, was struggling with vertigo and fatigue and like really weird symptoms like tingling in my face and my hands, and i couldn't figure out what was going on. My doctor thought maybe I had an ear infection or that I was just really you know, overworked and stressed out like the rest of the world. And I kept going back to doctors and taking, doing tests and neurological exams. And while this was all happening, I should mention that I was training for a fundraiser event, a bike event in Salt Lake city to raise money for uh, the national multiple sclerosis society and was getting ready to do this big ride But I had such bad vertigo that I couldn't ride my bike during the last couple months of training. And just before uh, the race, I was diagnosed with MS myself.
0: Courtney Carver joins us to talk about how to
2: be more with less.
4: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.